Welcome back to Generate. Thanks again for joining us for another exciting episode. I'm Brett Rampal, Director of Nuclear and Power Strategies at Veritin, and with me as always is Jeff Tillery, our COO. Today our guest is Dr. Jeff Waxman with the Strategic Capabilities Office at the Department of Defense. Jeff is joining us to speak on a wide-ranging breadth of topics around energy and the Department of Defense and activities around energy, but most specifically around some activities related to nuclear energy. We're super excited to have him join us here today and very much looking forward to our conversation with him. Pleasure to be on the podcast. Um, I know you told me that your prior two guests were Katie Huff and uh, Isodope from TikTok. And I know this is a downgrade. I don't know how I'm supposed to follow those two, but I'll, I'll do my best to, to try to be at least middling. You know, off the bat, in the years I've previously heard Jeff speak, one of the things that I've uh, always come away with is a statistic that I've heard uh, multiple times, and that's that 52% of the battlefield casualties in Iraq and Afghanistan were convoy-related, and that 80% of those convoys were related to the transport of fuel and water. Where does the logistics around energy on the battlefield and more broadly at DOD enter into the calculus around returning Americans safely home? Yeah, it's a good question to start with. Um, There's a quote that's like 2000 years old, uh, some version of that uh, amateurs talk um, tactics and professionals talk logistics. And if you look at, uh, you know, why was the United States on the winning side of World War I and World War II, it was not because we had the best planes or the best tanks or the most people. Because uh, none of those were true. Um, it was about logistics. It's about, you know, do, are you able to get the equipment that you need, the fuel that you need, the ammunition that you need, and everything else? Um, and if we ever get another near peer war again, um, logistics will be why we win or don't win. And that's certainly been one of the challenges that the Russians have had uh, in Ukraine. So it, it's definitely a big concern for the DoD. Uh, and happy to talk a little bit about how nuclear might support that. Yeah, I think that dovetails nicely to where I'd like to go is just giving us a little bit of background of the role that you think nuclear energy can play in supporting these logistical challenges. Sure. So nuclear energy has already transformed the way the DoD operates, uh, most notably in the creation of submarines. And I, I often talk about how before nuclear power, there were no submarines. And people sometimes argue with that. They say, hang on, weren't there submarines in World War I and World War II? There was a Tom Hanks movie. And the thing is, there were things called submarines. But if you look at them, they're just boats that can occasionally go underwater. They're shaped like boats because of that purpose. And they primarily spent their time above water. Um, Until you had nuclear power, you did not have something that could spend months underwater. It completely changed the way the Navy operated. And so similarly, we are completely dependent on uh, what uh, Jim Mattis called the, the tyranny of fuel. Everything that we do in the DoD uses a ton of power, a ton of electricity, and a ton of fuel. And if there's a way to produce that energy locally, which nuclear power can do, it could be completely uh, transformational to the way that the DoD operates. You know, the, the commercial world tends to think about nuclear in terms of you know, decarbonization or baseload power, and the hangup ends up being you know, cost. In a, in a military operation, you're kind of you know, changing up the priority um, order in terms of just knowing that you have baseload power, where some of those others are, are a little bit less consequential. If you think about some of the technologies being developed, you know, submarine is obviously addresses remote and, and, and onshore Where do you think we are in some of these technology developments for applicability to to land-based operations? Yeah, so you're right. I mean, when commercial nuclear is worried about competing with fossil fuels that produce power like three cents or four cents a kilowatt hour, 
um, if you look at a lot of the areas where the DOD operates, say in uh, whether it's Alaska, Arctic areas or on, on Pacific islands, um, they will regularly pay now upwards of 30 cents a kilowatt hour. And in warfare, it could be a lot more. If you look at what they were paying in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, they would be paying up to $100 a gallon of fuel. Uh, I've talked to people who ha- had to fly fuel in on a helicopter into remote bases. So uh, nuclear is competing at a very different price. And also the DOD is willing to pay extra for that sort of resiliency. So it- it's an opportunity for nuclear to get its foot in the door where it doesn't need to be five cents a kilowatt hour in order to be very, very useful to what the DOD does. Super fascinating, Jeff. Where else have you spent some time in the government talking around these topics and everything? I understand DOD is not your first stint in government service. I did spend some time in D.C., most notably for NASA, where I work for the NASA administrator doing policy. I learned a bit of how um, how the sauces gets made in D.C. Uh, I'm working towards, uh, as my one of my previous bosses said, towards my, my black belt in bureaucracy. Um, I don't know if I'm a black belt yet, but I'm getting there. And so... Back in 2018, when Congress asked for a plan to um, demonstrate a nuclear reactor to military installation, so Congress asked just for a plan of how it would get done. And the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering decided, hey, well, rather than talk about a plan, let's actually build something. And so he assigned it to the Strategic Capabilities Office. And uh, the person who was in charge of that organization had known me from NASA and and thought I might be the one to help them uh, with this. So that was why I was brought in to this, trying to take my knowledge of, um, I, I don't know the order of the karate belts. So whatever color belt I'm at right now, that, that would hopefully be enough to get through this program. We'll, we'll call it purple. I'm sure you're, you know, high up the ladders of, of belts. But, you know, just following up on that a little bit, Jeff, a lot, of, a lot of people always point to kind of, you know, the space transformation, you know, discussion that's happened recently, NASA transformation, private space transformation. Do you think that kind of played a little bit into your role or into the, the kind of discussion around you wanting to make the move into DOD, bringing some of that thinking, you know, wanting to see some more of that change? in typical sort of, you know, government industrial military complex? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I certainly played zero role in, in SpaceX sure, happening, sure, yeah. but um, but seeing the way that NASA did that, the way NASA cultivated that um, and seeing, you know, actually making real things happen and making real hardware happen is definitely, you know, inspirational. I've tried to learn from the way that that happened. And when I talk with people across the government about the way to get nuclear happening again, I really do think that that SpaceX model is the right model. And I don't mean about finding a billionaire who's willing to, you know, invest in crazy things. I mean, on the government side, the way that NASA cultivated, remember, SpaceX was not who they looked at first. Uh, it was, a, it was a, a, oh, Kistler, Kistler Aerospace. But anyway, the, it's the regime that they set up that allowed that to happen. And then uh, that's the sort of model that I think nuclear has to follow. I, I have not been a fan of the way nuclear programs have been done before in in non-naval ways in the in the uh, government in the last a couple decades and so uh we're we're trying a different approach here and i think that that that's the, the path to success hopefully you know we're also super interested in seeing the success of these technologies you know deployed multiple different ways we talked as you mentioned to katie huff previously about doe demonstrations you know commercial side of things you mentioned earlier congress was asking recently for a plan to be developed and everything when might you think we see some of these demonstrations happening and and what kind of role specifically is your office and the dod playing in pushing these demonstrations forward 
Well, our, our schedule is that we uh, hope to have the reactor built by the end of calendar year 2024. There's obviously some schedule risk there. I'm not going to bet my life on us having that done by the end of calendar year 2024. But uh, certainly at this point, we're optimistic that by 2025, it will actually be in place and producing electricity. You know, turning things from plans and money to actual execution has never been easy in government. Um, there's often a perception in the public like, oh, we passed an infrastructure bill. We're going to start getting a bunch of new bridges and roads and whatever else. But uh, there's a reason why a lot of government programs fail. And so uh, execution is really the hard part of, of government. And, and so we're hoping. And, and I do think that my organization plays a big role in that. Uh, the Strategic Capabilities Office, where I work, was founded about 10 years ago specifically for rapid prototyping. We, we work outside the normal DoD bureaucracy. Uh, we work with a speed that is unheard of in the rest of the government. Uh, we like to joke that at SCO, we specialize in CBO which is counter bureaucracy operations. Um, and so we think that if anyone can uh, succeed in this, uh, it'll be us. I mean, it's extremely interesting, you know, a small scale reactor deployed in 2025, it's right around the corner. And you know, as we think about, you know, the applicability of, you know, what you're pursuing and, and accomplishing to kind of impact to the, the, the rest of the non-defense oriented energy spectrum, you, know, you guys have always been very conscious of, you know, parallel commercial deployment and development. Could you talk a little bit about why you view that as critical to your operations? You mentioned earlier, maybe just talk about that philosophy around commercial development and deployment alongside of what you're pursuing. Sure. You know, while costs, we're not as sensitive to cost as the commercial sector is, we certainly are sensitive to cost. You know, the DOD has a limited budget, despite what some people think. And so we believe that the cost will be brought down if there are commercial variants of the same reactor so that the supply chain can be producing enough components, and enough parts that the price per unit will come down to the point that's competitive uh, for the DOD. And there's precedent here, which is that uh, a lot of people don't realize that the first commercial nuclear reactor ever built in the world, the shipping port reactor, was built by the Navy, and it was an aircraft carrier reactor. And so to this day, most commercial nuclear reactors around the world are light water pressurized water reactors, which is a very particular type of reactor. And it's probably not even the ideal reactor for the commercial sector. Uh, in fact, at the time, if you ask the leaders in the 50s of the nuclear industry, they did not think that light water reactors would be what the commercial sector was using. Um, it was just kind of it's supposed to be intermediary. But the DOD is so powerful in the way that it can drive markets and drive technologies that it can facilitate commercial reactors. And then it also is the risk of locking in technology. So certainly we're hopeful that in the future there will be multiple types of advanced nuclear reactor technologies, but we're also sensitive to the reality that it's unlikely we're going to go in the future with seven radically different reactor types. That's just not the way these supply chains work. So what we're optimistic of is that when we build Pele, it will create commercial variants that will use the same materials, and that will provide both a commercial solution uh, to reduce uh, dependence on fossil fuels, but will also drive the price down per unit for the DoD. Super interesting. And, you know, you kind of mentioned a little bit there about the history around, you know, nuclear and everything. And we talked about the nuclear Navy just a little bit before. But how has the DOD's sort of non-Navy history around nuclear existed? You know, this is this is not the first foray for the, the Army or or for non-Navy to be considering nuclear, is it? Yeah, so that's correct. So back in the day, both the Army and the Air Force had nuclear programs. Uh, everyone knows the Navy program. They don't realize that the other two services had them as well. Um, the Air Force uh, flew an operating nuclear reactor. 
And in fact, uh, I like to joke about how before 1970, there were no laws. You could just do whatever you wanted. And um, that is one of those examples that that reactor, their safety plan, if the reactor started to melt down in flight, was that they would parachute it out the plane. And there was a trail plane filled with Marines who would secure the perimeter. And I can't even imagine what the NEPA would be like for that in 2023. But basically, there were no rules back then. You could just do crazy stuff. And anyone who, who ever gets out to Idaho... They still have one of those Air Force reactors. You could see the carcasses of it out in the field out there. It's amazing. Um, the Army program was a little bit more successful. They actually built eight nuclear reactors. Um, they powered several uh, important things. Uh, they did Project Ice Worm in Greenland. They powered Fort Greeley. Uh, one of those reactors was put on a boat, and it actually powered the Panama Canal for three years. So uh, the Army has done this before. There are still uh, remnants of the Army nuclear reactor program. There was still an Army nuclear office when uh, we started here. It's very tiny, as you can imagine. But um, so, yes, there is absolute precedent here. Um, although I am very clear, uh, I, you know, every time I meet with someone from the Navy, they say, well, you know what the Army did the last time they had reactors? Uh, you know, they killed three people. <laughs> um, and uh, we always try to reassure them that in no way is the Pele reactor a uh, genetic descendant of those Army reactor designs. Um, if I tried to take those Army's 1960 designs to a regulator, I would get laughed out of the room so fast. Um, so in no way is this technology descendant. But the point is that the Army has the institutional memory on how to train people. Uh, there are regulations in place and things like that. So so we, at least in that sense, are descended from that past Army program. If the if the Army is the, is the direction that we end up transitioning this technology to. Sure. And, you know, I, I think the accident you're kind of referencing there, SL-1, we're many years from that. And that was something that the industry actually learned a lot from about how to better operate and, and plan safety around nuclear operations. Yeah, the accident was in the 60s. And uh, the, the, the idea was you had a control rod that you had to manually pull out. And in the winter, it would get stuck. and You have to pull with all your might. And if you pulled it like 12 inches too far, it would blow up which is like, I don't know how anyone ever proved that sort of a safety system. And if you actually know that story, there's, there was a crazy love triangle going on. And so there's theories that one guy did it on purpose. Uh, it's really a crazy, crazy story. But rest assured, uh, no one in the 21st century would design a reactor such that pulling out a control rod would cause it to explode. Nor, nor are we requiring physically dragging the, the control rods out. So yeah, n nothing to do with those old designs. But uh, a lot of people did learn a lot of things uh, about uh, safety in the same way that, um, you know, <laughs> I, I often, you know, give the analogy of, you know, no one is afraid to fly on a Boeing 787 because the Wright Flyer in 1905 crashed a lot. You know, like, yeah, we learned a lot from these really awful, unsafe designs from the 50s and 60s. And now what we're doing is, uh, is a whole different ballgame. And maybe talk about, you know, how this evolves going forward and the, and the challenges beyond, you know, the initial project take shape. Do you, I mean, how do you see the, the challenges stacking up in, 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 in terms of, is it the technology? Is it you know, continued, you know, sufficient appropriation support, congressional support, you know, you know, other challenges I may not be thinking of. But, you know, how, how, do, you, how do you think this evolves over the next you know, half decade plus? Well, <laughs> You know, it's really hard. The DOD is a huge infrastructure. There's a lot of inertia and it's hard to change things. Um, and so uh, I, I'm certainly not trying to compare myself to Admiral Rickover, who was a much smarter and more successful person than I am. But uh, I, I like to point out that Admiral Rickover was fired by the Navy twice. Uh, and at one point, the Senate actually held up all promotions of all admirals until the Navy agreed to take them back. 
So it's a reminder that the idea of like, oh, we'll just put a nuclear reactor and then it'll transition and we'll have tons of them in the crust of DOD. It's never that easy. Now, it, certainly it helps that we have really strong support. Uh, you know, Congress, both political parties have been very supportive. Uh, you know, the White House has been supportive. Um, we, we do think there is a lot of bipartisan momentum behind nuclear, but it's just the reality that this is hard. Um, you know, I, I like to joke that the program motto for Pele is that if this were easy, it would have been done already. And so there's just a lot of parts. We talked before about the supply chain and, and personnel, but just everything that comes involved with deploying real things in the real world for the DOD, just the, you know, like the, the concept of employment, the concept of operations, how do you train people? How do you buy enough of these things that they become cost effective, right? The, you can't set up the whole infrastructure and then buy two reactors because the price is going to be ludicrous. So all those things make it very hard and it's just going to take a lot of work. And it's, it, you, I don't want people to think that there's any kind of guarantee of success here. Um, but that's what makes this an exciting project and exciting thing to do, which is to try to do what is difficult. Because if we succeed, it will be absolutely transformative to the way the DOD operates and could be a game changer in uh, if we ever, God forbid, have to get in another uh, near peer uh, military fight. Historically, this is also not the first time that we've kind of talked about the, you know, the support at the federal level that the trans that the, of DOD or military institutions can have around the transformation around nuclear technology, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I used to joke that we, we went through a nuclear renaissance in the early 2000s of which no nuclear reactors got built. And now technically one got built since Vogel turned on, but it took about almost two decades. Um, so we, we absolutely recognize that there's, there's momentum now uh, and people want this to happen. But we also know that these hypes, these can be hype cycles that end. And we know that we are um, uh, the best chance for success in, in this round. Uh, you know, I had an opportunity to address uh, the entire uh, contractor team that we have here, a few, a couple, few hundred people. And I told them that, look, this is the best opportunity, opportunity that the country has to build a real advanced reactor. And if we mess it up, uh, it might be a couple of decades before we get an opportunity like this again. So uh, at PG level, I said, don't F it up. And uh, that, that, you know, they, I know they wrote that up on chalkboards. It's like, look, this is an opportunity. We have got to execute and we have got to succeed. Because if, if uh, you know, there are always going to be uh, things pushing back against nuclear power and we cannot give them a reason to pull on us uh, the way that they've, you know, exploited, you know, Vogel's uh, over schedule and over cost. We have got to deliver and we need to produce electrons in 2025. And so we're just doing everything that we can to make that happen. I think a lot of us agree with the, the sentiment around don't F it up around deploying new nuclear or a lot of the challenges around uh, the energy transition. But, you know, with our last question here, closing it out, you know, kind of switching gears, maybe a little bit more fun, a little off the cuff here. You said you worked with NASA also previously, you know, once a space guy or gal, always a space guy or gal. Um, you know, I'm sure you're still an admirer and we hear about news related to NASA and, and DOD in relation to nuclear energy as well. I know it's not your direct area where you're working right now again, but where what's going on with space and nuclear? And, and is nuclear energy a, a requirement, a, you know, a necessity, something that's just nice to have in sort of these future space endeavors that we're thinking about? 
you know, I, I actually still uh, work with NASA on a regular basis. In fact, the, the fuel line that we're using uh, at Lynchburg to make our fuel, we co-funded that with NASA. I uh, used my, um, some friendships over there to help, help work that. And yeah, nuclear is absolutely necessary if you want to go beyond any of the things that we've done in space. And, th- and there's a term called um, the ISP. It doesn't matter what it means technically. It's basically the fuel efficiency of a rocket. And the fuel efficiency of a rocket for a chemical rocket can only be so high. There's a physical limit to that. And pretty much like these modern SpaceX uh, rocket engines are as efficient as they can be. So if you want to get humans to Mars with a chemical rocket, nine months is basically as fast as you'll ever be able to go. Um, the only way to go to faster is if you have something with a higher fuel efficiency. And nuclear is an example saying that does have a higher fuel efficiency. It could give you more thrust and more power over more time. Uh, you could just immediately drop that down to like, say, three months or two months to get to Mars. So just your ability to move faster in space, it needs to be uh, nuclear, whether fission or fusion. Um, another thing that's unique is for the moon, because a lot of people don't realize that because the moon is tightly locked to the Earth, it means that the moon has a day that is 14 days long and a night that is 14 days long, which means that when it's nighttime on the moon, it is absolutely frigid for 14 consecutive days, which means your solar power is going to be of no use. So when we've sent people on Apollo, all of their missions were entirely in the daylight. They stayed for less than 14 days because everything was going to break if they hit nighttime. If you want something that's going to last more than 14 days on the moon, it has got to be nuclear power. There's just no way around it. Uh, unless you create some kind of like elaborate mirror where you can somehow shoot you know, solar rays down you know, through mirrors down to the surface. But there's no solar light on the surface. So this is why NASA is focused on fission surface power, because if they're going to have a permanent presence on the moon, it's going to require a fission reactor. And I do think that whenever humans finally get to Mars, they will do it on the back of a nuclear rocket. Well, super cool there. And, you know, um, nice to hear that uh, DOD and NASA are actively engaged on the topic. So, um, you know, really appreciate your thoughts here today, Jeff. I think it's been a really interesting conversation around energy and kind of the challenges around energy and why the DOD is looking at, uh, you know, nuclear energy for future operations. Uh, You have any last minute thoughts, parting thoughts you might want to share? I guess just to emphasize my, my point from before to, that, you know, we have, uh, I, I think we have the best team that could possibly be assembled for a nuclear reactor. We have the, the contractor that builds the reactors for the Navy. We've got really smart people from Idaho National Lab, Pacific Northwest National Lab, Argonne National Lab, all over the place. Um, but this is still a really, really hard challenge. And so people need to recognize that, um, you know, just because someone has a PowerPoint of a beautiful nuclear reactor, there's a long way from that to saying it's actually working. And so we just... We need to support multiple efforts. I don't want to be the only one, but and there are the ones going on right now, but we just need to have, have patience and, and recognize the challenges. And, and we appreciate everyone who talks to their congressman or whatever else about continuing to provide that, that broad, consistent support. Because um, if we're going to really transform the way the DOD operates and if we're going to decarbonize our society, I think we have got to make real progress in nuclear power. And so hopefully we can all uh, do that together and, and my team can play a small part. And, and it's definitely been a joy to, to be on the podcast. And uh, hopefully I provided uh, at least a small fraction of the entertainment that uh, Isodope and, and Katie did. It's been super entertaining for us. We appreciate your thoughts. B- big thank you. This is r- really interesting. And, you know, your message to your contractors, I think, is spot on. You know, it's, it's, it's so important and there's so many eyes on it. And so you kind of we need you guys to kind of make it happen, you know, in some form or fashion. I know it's I know it's not easy. Don't F it up and make it happen. That's the sentiment from this episode. So appreciate it. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate you here today. 
Thank you.